But we're in a sermon series uh, this morning, and uh, we've actually been in this sermon series for a minute, and if you remember some of the messages that we've preached, they've been slightly controversial, but I'll, I'll have to say this one this morning is probably uh, one of the most controversial messages maybe that I'll ever preach, I don't know. Um, and it's, 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 it's not because it's not a, a, a very popular topic in today's culture it very much is but I want to unpack this and I want you to understand that if, if this is the first time you've heard this series that this actually builds upon two other sermons that I've done about marriage being a covenant and then about homosexual or about about sex being by design so the title of my message this morning is did God really say homosexuality is a sin and so before we get, get into this I want us to just pray together is that okay so, Father, we just thank you for your grace and for your love and for your mercy. And, God, I want to come first and foremost, God, to just confess my sin before you because I can't stand as someone that, that is better than others or holier than others. I have been saved by your grace and your grace alone. And any transformation that has taken place in my life has just taken place by your grace and by your mercy, and I'm thankful for it. So I pray, God, that as we unpack your word today, that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. And most of all, God, your love and your mercy toward us would be elevated in us. But, God, the spirit of truth would come to show us how to navigate this difficult topic that is in our culture today. And so, Lord, we ask you to come in your spirit and to bless your word and anoint it and allow it to do the work that you want it to do. And God, I pray that you would give me your heart and you would give me the words to speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think even as I just start that title, you, you guys would say, man, this is a sensitive topic. I mean, I don't even know if uh, this, is, this is something we should be discussing in church. It just makes people uncomfortable. And, and here's the thing that I've come to the realization of is, is that when we are dealing with certain things in our culture that run counter to Scripture, I have a biblical responsibility as a pastor, even if I don't desire to speak on certain issues, that I have a biblical responsibility to address them so that we as the people of God understand the truth and we're not conformed to the culture and conformed to the world. And so I feel the weight of that because this is not something that I would choose to speak on apart from the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me it's something that I've been praying about for quite some time so I want to address that with this this with as much love and care as possible because I do believe that in the church throughout church history there have been there have been some things that have been done to harm people to hurt people and even cause damage under the banner of Christ whether it was intentional or not that has happened and I will agree with that on the other side of the spectrum I think that today in our church at large there's a lot of of, of division between what people are now believing and rather than doing things that may harm or hurt people we're going in a direction where we're no longer going based upon what scripture says concerning things so we want to find the place where God actually allows us to be the most loving and the most gracious that we can be as the church but also not let go of the truth of God's word and we want to find that place in the middle and, and, and deal with this topic and I'll say this you guys know sometimes when I preach like I'm going to go a lengthy way there's like 
Uh, this may be a minute, okay? But I want you to hear me from the front to the end because I need to unpack this to make sense of this. When I, when I look at arguments, I've got to be honest with you, I've had lots of conversations with people who have been in this lifestyle or struggled with this lifestyle, have, have maybe tried to come into Christianity and are wrestling with that. And so I've heard all the arguments. I've read books by people who are affirming of the LGBTQ community, and then I've read books uh, of those who have not, and I've studied church history throughout. So i got a lot of stuff to say I'm going to try to condense it into a reasonable amount of time but we still have to unpack it okay so I've heard all the arguments and all the reasonings and here's what I here's what I believe here's what I've come to the conclusion of is that I'm more certain than I've ever been that scripture still says what it has always said for 2,000 years of church history but on the same token I have more compassion and more empathy than I ever have for people who have struggled with what we're talking about and so I think we need, to, we need to have that same heart. We need to understand the, the, the volatile cultural condition that we, were in, that we are in and how to love people where they are at and share the gospel and the truth of God with them in a way that reveals the compassion and love of God for them. Because I want you to imagine something. I've imagined this. I've had conversations with people, and I've imagined this. So if we, if we begin, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're a, a young person and you're growing up and you're in school and as you're growing up and in school all of a sudden uh, you have some of your peers that start talking about the opposite sex and they start talking about you know different things about how they're attracted to them and they may say other things and there's a lot of talk going on and hormones are kicking in in a young person and all of a sudden it's like you realize inwardly you're like the way they talk about the opposite sex I just don't feel that way and so the, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with that maybe it's something that'll kick in later for me and then all of a sudden one day you realize that what they're saying about the opposite sex is the way you feel about the same sex now imagine you grow up in a church community in a Christian community and you've even heard your pastor preach upon these things and the way that he preached upon it it was almost as if he was a little bit angry and it seemed like he was out to get that particular person for what they felt that they couldn't quite control and now they finally after wrestling with it behind the scenes and maybe even saying well maybe if I get somebody to pray for me maybe if I go to the altar somebody will pray for me and these feelings will go away because I didn't ask for these feelings they're just here I don't know what to do with them and they're wrestling with that behind the scenes and they're afraid to tell their Christian parents because they're afraid that their Christian parents will dislike them, maybe even reject them outright and be ashamed of them. And imagine going through that behind the scenes your entire young life until you finally come to the grips with this is just who I am. And that now at least I've got a community out in the world that will support me and affirm me for who I am. I want you to just wrestle with that for a minute. Because have you ever thought about it? It's easy for us Christians especially heterosexual Christians, to think that our sin is far less than what they're dealing with. And it's easy for us to judge them and say, well, at least I'm not that. But I want you to have empathy and I want you to have compassion for people who are not like you, who don't have the same experience. Because here's what I've found. It's hard to hate somebody and it's hard to dislike somebody and it's hard to be against somebody when you're looking at them in the eyes across the table from you having a conversation with them. You find out maybe... You have no idea what's been going on in their life. You have no idea about the abuse they've been through, the trauma they've been through, the feelings they've been through. You've never even opened up and had a conversation with them. And when you look at somebody in the eyes across the table from you, all of a sudden your heart changes and you start to feel differently about that. And the question is, should we even be addressing this thing in the church? And I think we must address this in the church. 
It's important that not only do we know the truth about it, but how do we move forward as a church in love to actually minister to people? And this is going to continue to be a difficult thing because honestly, no matter how much love and how much grace I extend, there are some people that are just going to still flat out disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. As a Christian, you need to understand that when you stand on biblical truth, there will always be someone who disagrees with you. Period. And that's going to be something that you just have to accept because that's a difficult thing. But in our culture and in our generation, this is one of the reasons why we have to address it. It's because if you look at the stats right now, from generation to generation, there's been a rise in those who identify LGBTQ+. And if you look at it here, I got this image up. But basically, if you were born before 1946, you were a traditionalist, 0.8% of people identified LGBTQ. Uh, baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, 2.6% identified as LGBTQ. And then Gen X, 1965-1980, Millennials, my generation, we identified as 10.5% LGBTQ. And then Gen Z, born from 1997 to 2003, 20.8% identify LGBTQ. And so if the trend continues, the next generation will actually identify 41.6% LG- lesbian being gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. That's, that's where the trend is going. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is this trend here? Is it because now we've just sort of figured out sexuality? Is it because we've gotten it wrong all of these years? Or is there something going on bes- behind the scenes that we need to address and understand why we are heading this direction as a culture? And that's the question. How did we get where we are at in our culture? And I, so, so before we get into this, I'm going to get in the Scripture on the back end, but before we get into the Scripture to really unpack what the Bible has to say about this, we need to understand why it is we've gotten to where we are at in our culture so that legitimately almost every television show that you watch, right, there, there's, you find these issues in them. It's in the forefront of every conversation in society. And why is that? Why has it increased so much? And now you see a young generation beginning to identify more and more with this going on. And I need you to understand this, that gay relationships have been included in a framework of war. Now, what do I, I mean by that? If you study American sociological history, basically you had the, the Jesus Revolution. That movie's come out. Anybody go and watch it yet? So during that time, you had a lot of things going on in culture. You had the sexual revolution going on. You had the hippies and all this movement taking place. You had the Vietnam War going on. There were Vietnam riots. There was the civil rights movement. And so all of these things were being turned over in American culture. And the gay community basically said, you know what? America is ripe for us to push to the forefront gay rights in the homosexual community. We need to push that to the forefront. And there was something interesting that happened in 1960. There was an event called the Stonewall Riots in Greenwich Village, and there were six days of riots because basically some police officers in New York City went to a gay bar and and violently beat uh, some people in a gay bar. And that was when they came out and they said, man, we need justice for the homosexual community. And so they got together, and basically when they got together, they started a war with normalcy campaign. And in February of 1988, after the AIDS epidemic hit and honestly devastated much of the gay community, there was a war conference that was called, and they got 175 leading gay activists that got together near Washington, D.C., and they wanted to establish a four-point agenda for the gay movement. 
Now, there were two men specifically, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madston, that wrote a homosexual manifesto saying that we needed new techniques and new propaganda to lay the groundwork for the next stage of the gay revolution. They put out a book called After the Ball. You can put a look at this book. It's actually out of print now, but it's about how America will conquer its fear of hatred of gays in the, in, in the 90s. And they wrote this book, and it's out of print now. You can get it on Amazon for $350. Um, but in the book, they wanted to bring a three-pronged understanding of how to bring change. And here's what they said. They said, number one, we've got to desensitize the American people. Number two, we've got to jam any dissent to anyone who opposes gay relationships. And number three, we have to convert public opinion to believe that homosexual relationships are a good thing. And here's what they said, and I'm going to quote from the book right here if you want to read this with me. He says, we are the victims of a national sickness that manifests itself in the fear and hatred of homosexuality. The only appropriate response from the gay community and the only way to put an end to our oppression is ice-cold, controlled, directed rage. And he said, part one, changing the strategy, desensitize the American population to gay relationships. And he says, we need a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think about homosexuality as just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. Part two, jam those who oppose our movement. Violently, by any means necessary, block any dissent to our messaging. Anybody who opposes us must be punished. First, you get a foot in the door by being as similar as possible. Then and only then, with your one little difference orientation is finally accepted can you start dragging in other peculiarities one by one it's a cultural vision of being gay is normal and therefore every behavior and practice of any sexual minority must be accepted as normal too so this was their argument they're trying to push this agenda and it started back in the late 80s and let me let me ask you something how do you think that agenda has done it's been extremely effective they set out to do something and they did it effectively and they literally transformed culture and now a new generation is growing up in this culture that they set out to make happen in 1988. And this is by their own, I'm not, I'm not judging them or, or anything, I'm just saying what has actually taken place. And so the author, when he was interviewed, said that we protested until homosexuality was removed as a disorder in the American Psychological Association, and we sought to remove all sodomy laws and establish legal precedents in every area of society to establish rights for gays. And they said, here's the third thing that has been their biggest struggle, but it has changed some. They said, within the church, we wanted homosexuality to be removed from the list of sins. And do you know that many churches have divided over this issue specifically? The Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, they have divided because half of the church has decided we want to remove that from the list of sins and it has actually been pushed into the church in many of our areas and so they have been successful in that movement as well. Now here's what I want you to understand from a church perspective. When that stuff came out in the 1980s, guys like Jerry Falwell and the religious right come out and said, well, if they're going to go to war, we're going to go to war back against them. 
And we're going to do it in the political realm. And so they also used warlike rhetoric. And so then you see this battle engaging. And the reason left and right politically are so far apart is because it's always been us and them fighting one another, pushing back against one another. But it's so interesting to me, and I wrestle with this, y'all. i got to be honest with you. I wrestle with how involved in politics the Christian church should be. Because oftentimes it seems like when the Christian church engages in politics, they do not engage in politics from the Spirit of Christ. They do not engage in politics from a side of actually trying to win people to Jesus, but more or less trying to force their morality on a people who aren't even interested in Jesus. Now, is our goal to force morality on people outside of the church, or is our goal to reach people outside of the church with the love of Jesus Christ and then bring them into the church to a place of repentance where they can experience the salvation that Jesus offers? I want to leave that for you to wrestle with yourself, but the Apostle Paul actually said this to a church that was dealing with blatant sexual immorality. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 12 and 13, he said, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's what he said. He said, Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. What he's saying is is that when people become Christians, there is a moral standard that they should live by. If they say they're a follower of Christ, they should adhere to the moral standards given by Scripture that, that, that God says we should live in. But if people are outside of the church, he says, it's not for us to judge them, God will judge them. What we should do is reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call them to a place of repentance where they believe, but we're not here to force our moral compass on them we're here to preach jesus to them and see what i what i what i think is as hard as the religious right has fought they've lost the battle and in doing so i think probably they have created a wider gap between those people that they wanted to reach and that's a difficult pill for us to swallow because we think we're doing the right thing when we holler and scream for moral rights in the community and i'm gonna say something we 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 need to be moral we need to live our morality first though before we go hollering at anybody else. And some people will say, well, you know, you know, the church, they commit just as much adultery. They have just as much divorce. They got just as much fornication. And to a large degree, I would say amen. But that's also why before I preach on this particular issue, if y'all listened, I also preached on marriage, cohabitation, divorce, masturbation, pornography, having sex outside of marriage. So when we cover this, we're not just attacking one particular sexual sin. They all fall under the same umbrella. And Jesus Christ calls all people to repentance from all of them, regardless of whatever condition you, can, you fall, find yourself in. But the result of the culture war that's currently going on is confusion, embarrassment, and exhaustion. I've talked to people who are in that particular lifestyle, and you know what they say to me? I'm just tired of hearing it. I don't want to hear another Bible verse. I don't want to hear another Christian say anything. I've been to enough rallies where all I've seen outside are a bunch of Christians putting up signs that says God hates these people and y'all are all going to hell. And I don't want to hear any more of it. And can I say this to you from a loving heart? Not all Christians are that way. They're not all that way. We're not all angry people who just want to call out your sin and be hateful and, 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 and disagree with you about everything. Now, we may disagree with you about what you think is righteous and what you think is right. and what we, we may disagree with you, but I'm telling you, a good Christian person, one who has been forgiven much, loves much, 
A good Christian person wants to see you come to a place where you experience the love of Jesus Christ that transforms your life. So now, knowing that, it's challenging, honestly, to open the Bible because you see a couple of things happening. One, either people say, I don't want to hear nothing about the Bible. That's nothing but a fairy tale. It's nothing but a book. And not only that, I don't think the Bible says, Clay, what you think it says. I've got a different interpretation because I've got Bible teachers who say something different. Well, I think we need to address that this morning. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is basically is this big theological thing, but stick with me. Y'all still good this morning? Say, Lord, help me think this morning. We're going to take some time and work through this. Put up that next slide if you would. So this is how we interpret God's will. And there was a Wesleyan quadrilateral. And here, here's the issue, is that most people reverse how it's supposed to take place. And most people start with their experience. Either they start with their own personal sexual experience or they start with a friend or someone they love, their experience. And from experience, they go to reason and they think within their minds, what's the best way to love this person and encourage this person and strengthen this person? And then from there, they critique the tradition of the church and say, well, see, that can't be right because my friend or myself is experiencing this and it doesn't feel like love based on my experience. So the church has to have been wrong for 2,000 years. They weren't interpreting Scripture right. So then we bring our experience and our reasoning to bear on Scripture and we find interpretations that line up with our experience. Church tradition throughout history teaches the opposite. It says that we come to Scripture, we read what Scripture says, and then we use 2,000 years of church tradition, what the church has always interpreted the Scripture to say so that we know it's been passed down by men of God and women of God who have known for years this is the right way to read it. And then we reason and think through it about how to apply it to our experience and how to apply it to our loved ones. So we have to start with Scripture because as Christians, we believe that the Word of God is authoritative. And that if it's interpreted correctly, it will inform us as to what we should do with our lives and how we should move forward in love and in truth. So the first thing that I want to say, and I, and I covered this last time, so I'm not going to open it up in the Scripture. But in Genesis chapter 2, we've already established that according to God's Word, homosexuality is contrary to God's original design. He said it is not good for man to be alone, and he used a particular word for, for man, ish, and he created from man, isha, which is woman, and it signifies literal gender difference. And so he says it's not good for him to be alone, and he designed it so that a man would be with a woman. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And when they become one flesh, by design, they're able to procreate so that they can populate the earth. That does not function with male and male or, or, or female and female. And so he's trying to lay that out the groundwork from the beginning that it is by design. And God lists several pairings of complementary shifts in the book of Genesis. He creates light and dark. He creates earth and sky. He creates land and sea, sun and moon. And he has those distinctions and differences. Then he creates humans and animals. And when he designs human beings in the likeness and image of God, he creates them specifically male and female. And he says in that design is how Godly family will function, children will be born, and they can raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they can go forth in that particular design. So both partners need to be human, both partners need to come from different families, and both partners need to display sexual difference. And he says when you come together, it is one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. 
There weren't two women. There weren't three. There were, it was a very specific design. Now, scholars will argue and say, well, no, 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 that's not, that's not, uh, you know, that's just trying to say that they both had to be human. No, he's trying to denote something very specific in Genesis chapter 1. But we've already covered that, so I want to move into kind of the lightning bolt passages that some people are really afraid to use because some people are afraid of the Old Testament, and I'm going to get to that. Now, these passages are very strong, and these are some of the most quoted in both sides of the argument, but they also draw the, draw the most resistance and reluctance, and that's in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22, it says this, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20.13, two chapters later, says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, this is strong language, but I need you to understand the context of it. And I'm going to unpack this slowly, so stick with me. Don't shut down on me just yet. This is strong language, but you've got to understand the context that the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt, and God is going to use Israel to bring salvation to the entire world. And he's trying to make them different from all the surrounding nations, so he's giving them a code and a lifestyle to live by so that they can be specifically what he calls holy separate from this world so that they can see clearly the surrounding nations and the surrounding world can see God's design and be drawn to it and live by it. And so he's giving them this and he says he wants to make them holy and set them apart. And the word holy or holiness actually occurs 87 times in Leviticus. And it's summed up in chapter 17 and 19 too. And it says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, I want you to understand this. If you read in Leviticus, any kind of sexual sin, any kind, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, any kind of sexual sin, the punishment is the same. And you say, well, Clay, are you telling me that we're trying to go by Old Testament and people who commit these sexual sins need to be put to death? That was their civil law back then. I need you to understand a New Testament principle that the wages of sin has always been death. And that's why when you come into the new covenant, you see Jesus dying on a brutal cross. Because whether it's fornication, any type of sexual sin, homosexuality, Jesus took that sin upon himself and received the death that you and I deserved so that we could experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. We don't believe that you need to be put to death. We believe you need to see that Jesus has been put to death on your behalf so that you can experience forgiveness and salvation and freedom. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same punishments are not intact in the new covenant because Jesus has borne the punishment of the old covenant. He took the death that we did not deserve. And so as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to understand that. But the progressive teachers of the Old Testament teach that the Old Testament passage, we shouldn't do it. I mean, honestly, it's becoming popular. I could name churches in our area that sort of just say, we need to probably throw out the Old Testament. Can I tell you, that's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea because without the Old Testament, you don't have the New. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament well over 300 times. Matter of fact, Jesus specifically quotes a verse from Leviticus more than any other verse in the New Testament. 
The Apostle Paul and Peter use Leviticus over and over again for their moral code and conduct, and they quote from Leviticus 26 times in order to inform how Christians should live in the New Covenant. Where did they get that from? They didn't just make it up in their own mind. They had moral law that was passed down from generation to generation through the Old Covenant. See, Leviticus 18 through 20 is one section of teaching, and it's a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And here's actually a list of moral instructions included. If you read Leviticus 18 through 20, here's a list of things that you'll see. It it speaks against incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, having sex with animals, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in a court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers, and then finally the summation of it is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you all, you think those are things that we should toss out? You don't think we should. And see, but then somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah. And I've heard preachers preach this, and they try to make a mockery of the old covenant, which is dangerous. But they say, yeah, but you know what it says in the Old Covenant? It says you shouldn't be wearing uh, 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 clothes with, with two different types of fabric on them. So we need to throw all that out. Or it says you shouldn't be eating shellfish or pork. So we need to throw all that out. Listen, folks. For 2,000 years, since the time of Jesus, Jesus himself taught it, his apostles taught it, that there are certain things in the law of Israel that went through the cross, and there are certain things that did not. And theologians have traditionally broke down and understood the Old Testament in three categories, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law has been true for all people in all places in all times, and it reflects God's will still today. The ceremonial law, including dietary laws, thank God, Jesus ended up changing himself. He said, do you know that it's not what comes into a man that makes a man unclean? It's what comes out of a man that makes a man unclean, thereby thereby making all foods clean to eat. Praise God, you can eat a ham sandwich today. He says the law regarding sacrifice and their participation, having to bring goats and bulls and pigeons and blood sacrifices, it was done away at the cross. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He ended all dietary laws. And the civil law informed their government as a theocracy and a nation. Well, guess what? We're no longer a nation in that particular sense. We are a spiritual nation. And so our government, American government, has laws. Sometimes they line up with biblical standards. Sometimes they do not. But every nation must have laws to govern some type of morality otherwise when somebody would kill somebody else there'd be no punishment and so we don't still hold their civil law we hold their moral law and the punishment is different in the new covenant now in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 Paul launches an argument and he basically says this he doesn't just come out and say you know what homosexuality is bad he doesn't say that he says no every last one of you all are sinners That's the argument that he launches. That all of us have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when he makes lists of sins, it is exhaustive, son. Like I remember reading the scripture and it just go and just those lists hitting me fornication, adultery, fits of rage, anger, hatred, drunkenness, drug use, pharmacia, sorcery. I'm just like, dude, I'm all those. You know what I'm saying? Like I ain't gonna make it. Y'all ever felt that way reading the Bible? Those things are given to us to actually drive us to Jesus so that we say, man, I need a Savior. 
And that's the whole purpose of the book of Romans. And so he ends up saying this in Romans chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And so he says, what's going on in our culture today? He says, the wrath of God is actually currently being revealed. And it's being revealed because people are suppressing the truth and saying, I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me what's true. Don't tell me that, that this particular lifestyle is sinful. Don't tell me that. And so they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what it says is it unfolds that what God does, His wrath is being revealed, not in that He hates them, not in that He's punishing them, but it says simply that He is handing them over to their decisions. Three times it says because they did not want to know God and because they rejected Him as Creator, therefore He handed them over. And because they continued down that path and still did not acknowledge Him as God, nor were they thankful, God handed them over. And you see this. You see that the wrath of God is actually when you say, God, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to do things my way. And He simply says, okay. And you begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted punishment because sin in itself brings punishment upon you internally. Understand that. And so then he opens up, and in Romans 1.24, he says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for de- the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Then he goes on in verse 26 and says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And the whole argument that he's saying, he's going back to Genesis and he's saying these relationships are against God's design. They're against nature. And here's what's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, no, what Paul was really talking about is abusive sexual relationships or relationships that were not monogamous. So like if a person is homosexual and having multiple sexual relationships, but he's not speaking concerning uh, two, uh, like a gay couple that come together and are monogamous. He's not saying that. Well, one scholar, Lewis Crompton, he's a Canadian scholar in the instruction of queer studies. He's not a Christian. He reads the scripture and he says this. He says, according to one interpretation of basically gay scholars, he says, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. And so somebody would say, like, well, he's just, he's just shutting it off completely. And a lot of people will argue, well, see, Paul was just a bigot. Thank God for Jesus. Paul was a bigot, and he was just out to get homosexuals. Well, that's not true, because if you read in 1 Corinthians, 
Corinthians 5, he actually speaks to them specifically and he says, look, y'all, you got a guy in your church that is currently sleeping with his father's new wife and he says, and y'all are acting like it's okay. He said, what you need to do because he thinks it's a good thing to keep doing this and he's unrepentant is hand him over to Satan, kick him out of the church so that he would come to his senses and realize the sinful lifestyle that he's in and return and repent and come back into the church so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he's not just attacking one particular type of sexual sin. He is trying to say all of these things are outside of God's design. And I know it's harsh for all of us. It's harsh for all of us, and it seems very strong. Romans 1.32, I need to get into this. He finishes it up and sums it up by saying, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, there has been much approval of certain things that have been practiced time and time again. But it says the key, I want you to understand this, the key word here is practice. And I want to say this, that there is a difference between attraction and action. This is important. This is important right here. You need to understand this. Because several people, attraction and practice are two different things. I've got to be honest with you. Any probably male or woman in here, if you're being totally honest, you're pro- if you're married this morning and you're heterosexual, at some point in your life or another, if you're being honest, you've probably been attracted to someone else. Somebody said, no, not me, praise God. I ain't, telling, I ain't owning up to that this morning. It's one thing to be attracted. It's another thing to fall into lust in the mind, to press into it deeply, and then worse, act upon it, which becomes adultery. Of course, Jesus fired that up because you remember what he said. He said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. So he's dealing with like the heart issue of all of these things and the sexual sin that every single one of us fall into. But there is a difference between attraction and action, and there's actually people who have written extensively on this. I'm going to give you four authors who have written on this specifically because these four authors were always growing up. Many of them, they lived a homosexual lifestyle. They got saved. They were always their entire life attracted to the same sex, but they gave their life to Jesus, and God gave them insight on their reality. There was uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, Jackie Hill Perry. Those, those are two women today that write about it. David Bennett is a man that's written about it, and somebody the other day was talking about Henry Nowen, who has written several books. All of these people grew up as a gay or lesbian person, attracted to the same sex, met Jesus, had an encounter with Jesus, chose to give up their sexual desires for the sake of Christ. Even the women who wrote those books, Jackie Hill Perry and Rebecca McLaughlin, they decided for the sake of Christ, they married men and they still deal with same-sex attraction. They have children in a family and they share the gospel with whoever they can because here's what Rebecca McLaughlin ends up saying about it and sometimes people disagree with what she has to say but I want you to hear what she has to say. She said, we believe that God could change our instincts. Basically, she's saying, we believe God could change our desires. God could give me a desire for sex of the opposite sex, but he says, we have no promise that he will. But here's what she says. Because blue-blooded heterosexuality is not the goal of the Christian life Jesus is. What she's saying is, 
It's not important that Jesus actually changes my desires to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. What's important is that I submit my desires to Jesus because I'm more in love with him than anything. And I'm identified by Jesus. I'm not identified by my sexual attraction or orientation. Jesus is the love of my life. And therefore, I will submit my life and even my sexuality to him. The goal is not for God to change you and make you like the opposite sex. The goal is for your heart to be surrendered to the will of God and you submit your sexuality and your entire being to Him. Many of you men in here, you're serial fornicators and you look at pornography all the time and God's asking you to do the same thing. Would you submit your sexual addictions to Him? That's what He's asking. And it's out of love. So the issue is about practice. It's not about having the desires themselves. It's not the desire necessarily that's sin. It's not the attraction that's sin. It's the action and the practice of it that enters into a place in which we bring ourselves up under the judgment of God and outside of God's design. See, you have to understand that Paul doesn't end with, Roman, with, with, with sin in Romans 1. He goes on. He goes on much more deeply because he basically says that through faith in Christ, you can be justified. You know what that means? That anybody in any particular sexual sin, they are not shut off from Christ. God has said, I've made a way for you to come to me. And I know that you're struggling. I know you don't have it all figured out. But if you're willing to follow me and repent and turn to me, even though you may still struggle and not have it figured all out, I'm willing to walk with you as long as it takes if you'll simply believe in me and follow me. Because I need you to understand something, church. You cannot expect every person in every lifestyle to get it right and be set free from sin day one. I wasn't set free from sin day one. I started following Jesus and kept, I said, Jesus, you got to save me. You got to help me. And for the next year, I struggled with pornography and sexual addiction and drug addiction and alcoholism and hatred and fits of rage. I cussed people all to peace. It was still happening after I said, Jesus, save me. Because there's sometimes a process where God has to unravel and unwire all of this junk that is in our hearts. And the church has to be gracious enough to receive people and say, we're willing to walk with you while you struggle with this thing. Because we got problems too. Your problem, your issue may be different than ours, but we got the same problems at the end of the day in our very hearts. And he says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul also talked about this issue at the church of Corinth. He also talked about the issue to Timothy pastoring a church in Ephesus. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice this verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When you come into a Christian church, what you should see is people who used to be sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunks, revilers, and swindlers who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, justified by His resurrection, and been sanctified and are currently being transformed by the Holy Spirit. 
Christians are transformed people who used to be living according to the systems of this world. That's who they are. He says, I know some of y'all used to be this, but you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. You've been transformed. And he was actually writing that to a culture that was so sexually immoral in multiple ways that they were deemed to be Corinthianized. And basically that meant that they'd come to a sexual place where they just said anything goes. We're going to have sex with whoever we want to, whenever we want to. And they would go to the temple and worship goddesses in order to do it. And he's writing to that culture. That's becoming more and more like America. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Some people will say, well, Clay, don't you understand that we're no longer under the law and Jesus came to do away with the law and we don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Here's what Timothy says about, Paul says to Timothy about that. He says that we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, one of the big arguments today that I've had people actually come to me and argue is say, well, Clay, you know that homosexuality is not actually in the Bible. That's not even a word that was used until like the 1920s it was a word that was created in the 1920s and they translated it and the translators got it wrong well see that that argument begins to break apart when you actually study what's going on here because Paul uses two specific words he uses malakoi and arsnikoites and you're like "I, I don't care about that clay I understand I get it but just listen to me okay because they say that he uses those words and they don't mean homosexuality But it's clear that if you go back to what I read in Leviticus, now you've got to understand that this man read Leviticus. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament frontward and backward, and he got all of his morality from the moral code, the holiness code, in Leviticus. And in Leviticus 18, the two words that were used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which he would have had, he would have read the Septuagint. When he read Leviticus 18, he read meta arsonist koiton, and he read arsonist koiton. And scholars will say that it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that he got that language from those scriptures in the Greek Septuagint, and he coined a term to address what he saw going on in the world today. And that's why almost every translation translates it homosexuality because it is simply the word that we have that denotes what he was seeing. So people will also argue, everybody's still good with me so far? I, I, I get that this is not, I'm not enjoying it either. But it's still the word of the Lord. So Paul, people say, that's Paul. I've literally heard this argument. Like people will say now to me and they'll come to me and have conversation and I'll, I'll quote a scripture and they'll respond by saying, yeah, but that's Paul. I'm like, excuse me? It's, it's, it's scripture. And they'll say, yeah, but that's Paul. What does Jesus say about it? And so they'll actually say, well, Jesus has nothing to say about homosexuality. Maybe you've heard that. But this is actually called the argument from silence. And I need you to understand this, this argument breaks down pretty quickly when you realize that Jesus doesn't say some things about a lot of stuff. Jesus doesn't talk about home invasion or robbery. He doesn't talk about alcoholism. He doesn't talk about drug abuse. He doesn't talk about rape. 
He doesn't talk about pedophilia or child sacrifices or abortion or human trafficking, but yet every single one of us would argue that those things are still things that we should not practice. So when you use that argument, Jesus didn't talk about it. It begins to break down, but you understand that Jesus is coming from somewhere very specific because he says, look, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or destroy the Old Testament writings. He says, matter of fact, I've come to fulfill the law in the Old Testament writings. And he says, not one jot or one tittle, not one iota will pass away until all has been fulfilled. And he actually says that there's judgment for those who begin to relax the law of God. He says, do not relax these laws. He says, uphold them, and I'm going to go to the cross to die for those who have broken them. So, in Matthew 19, Jesus actually doubles down. He says in verse 4 and 5, he answered, and this is in the context of divorce, I understand, but it, it needs to be read nonetheless. He answered the Pharisees when they asked him about a divorced family. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female. So he's establishing what he thinks marriage should look like. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so he has this idea of them being bonded together in that marriage covenant. In verse 7, they said, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And boys are basically saying, look, if we can't commit adultery, I don't know if I want to get married at all. I mean, they're just being, I love how they were just real. And then he says, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, and really a, a better translation for that would be people who are celibate. There are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs or be celibate and not have sex for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he says the one who can accept this should accept it. So there are literally eunuchs, he says, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Jesus addresses sexual immorality, and it's the word pornea, and it literally covers all sexual sin described in the Old Testament. And the reason that he does that, he, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Jesus only preached primarily to Israelites. It was already fully established what was sinful sexually, and what was not sinful. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that homosexuality was not according to design and that in Scripture there was to be no practice of it. So Jesus didn't have to deal with that with them. And why you see Paul writing about it is because he's going to Roman culture, he's going to Greek culture, and for them it was an open practice. And for them, he had to address it specifically and use what God had said from the beginning in order to make them make sense of what was going on in their lives. He didn't have to give a reinterpretation of a law that had already been culturally accepted. But see, here's, here's the thing. If you get on the Internet today, you're going to find anybody that's going to help you justify whatever sin you're looking to be justified. It's a fact. We were, we were doing a ministry this weekend, and I talked to different guys, and we talk about interpretation of scriptures, and everybody's getting, their, everybody's getting their new interpretations from people on TikTok. Can I tell you, the TikTok is not a good place to learn the Bible. 
You need to do it in a healthy community that opens the scriptures regularly. And, and, and it's backed up by years and years of, of orthodox Christianity within the realm of the church where people don't... Look, if people are coming up with a new translation and a new interpretation that just started here recently, I mean, that's suspect. It's suspect. And you got people, I, I won't name names, I could name four just off the top of my head that I've listened to, and they literally take the scriptures that I just read to you, and they do, they do gymnastics all around these scriptures to try to tell you that all sexual sin ultimately is okay, that we're just biological creatures that should feed our impulses, and there's grace for that, and, 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 God, and, and, there, and that's everywhere that you look for it if you want to find it. But here's what I'm saying, is don't just take a person's word for it. When I first came to the scripture, it comes me like a knife because it addressed my sin issue and I didn't want to hear it I didn't want to have to change I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to have to deal with that but when it deals with it I want you to say no you know what I'm not going to take a man's word for it I'm going to go to the Bible myself I'm not going to listen to a TikTok theologian I'm going to go to the Bible myself and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to tell me whether or not this is true because God if this is true then you will enable me to live according to your design that's the one thing that most people don't believe. Most people that don't believe that God will actually not just forgive them and not just cleanse them, but He will enable them by the power of the Spirit to deny their flesh and put it to death and live according to His design. Even if, look, here's the thing, I still struggle with some temptations. Apart from God and apart from the Holy Spirit, I would be liable to go back to pornography I would be liable to be tempted to adultery. I would be liable to go back to alcoholism and drugs. But I have a relationship with Jesus, which through the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives me the ability to deny these impulses. And this is what He's calling us all to, regardless of our background, regardless of our sin. Somebody will say to me, but Clay, man, are you, are you telling me that God didn't make me this way? Because this is all I've ever felt from the beginning. Are you saying that my sexuality and my identity are actually sin? Are you telling me who I am is sin? And I'm saying no. I'm not saying that. See, the argument, a big argument today is, well, were they born, born gay or not born gay? That's the wrong argument, folks. Because you don't just need to go back to birth. You need to go all the way back to the beginning of creation, to the fall. Because sin came, you know what? I was born sexually immoral. I was born with a proclivity to alcoholism and drug addiction. I was born with a, with, with, with a push toward rage and anger. And honestly, I'm going to be honest with you this one. Sometimes I still wrestle and resist those things by the power of the Spirit. They still try to creep back in. This is why Jesus says put off the old nature and put on the new. But it's not an issue of whether or not they were born that way. Most of them, most likely, that's all they have known. And therefore, you need to give them some empathy and some grace and some mercy because they're growing up in a culture where everything is swallowing them up by telling them they should just accept that lifestyle and they should stick to it and they should believe that it is our, their identity. But can I tell you, your sexuality is not your identity. No matter what background you come from, it's not your identity. It's not who you are. It's not who God has made you to be. It's simply a part of your desires. Being gay is not who you are. It is how you are. It's a label for how you act upon your desires. But our identity does not come from our feelings or our desires. Our identity comes from God. 
I told somebody the other day, we read it in our, in our small groups book, somebody that was trying to quit smoking. They said, hey, don't, don't, don't address it as I'm trying to quit smoking. Address it as I'm not a smoker in Christ. I have a new idea. This is not who I am in Christ. Sometimes I have a temptation towards certain sins, but in Christ, that's no longer who I am. Why? Because, yes, I may have been born sinful, but Jesus says you must be born again. You must be given a new heart and a new spirit and be transformed from the inside. And if you're willing to yield to that, God will save you, God will forgive you, and you will have struggles. But if you grow spiritually by the power of the Spirit, you can crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. And this is the gift that Jesus gives us. God has made us all in His image, whether whatever race, whatever ethnicity, whatever sexual orientation, and He loves us all more desperately than we could ever imagine. And God's given us this grace, and I want to say, church, for those of us who are forgiven much, should we not love much? Should we not go out of our way to extend grace to people who are struggling with these issues on a daily basis and extend love to them and welcome them into the family of God even while they're in it and even while they're struggling and say we're willing to walk with you and here's the gospel and here's the truth and here's what God's word says and give it time to have its work in a human heart. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't change day one. I'm still in process. Anybody else in here still in process? But the other thing that I can't do, and I realize, I realize this. I realize that some people will say, well, Clay, you don't, you don't sound very welcoming based on what you said. And I disagree with you, and therefore I can't really be a part of this church. And I understand that. I understand that. I don't want anybody to leave. I don't, I don't want, desire that. I would love to have everybody. And here's the thing. I, we, we as a church, we want to welcome everybody. Don't ever feel like you can't invite somebody to church based on their background or what they're currently struggling with. We all got struggles. Don't lump this sin as somehow different than the rest of every other sin in the world. We all need Jesus, and the world has caused us to have that divide where we see different sins differently. Somebody said, well, so, so can I be gay and, 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 and be a Christian? And, and the question is this, look, if you're, if you're currently struggling with that, and you're willing to yield your sexuality to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm dealing with same-sex attraction, but I want to yield that to you, and I want to turn to you, and I want you to save my soul, and I want to follow you, and I want you to help me with that, then yes, you can be a Christian. But if you say, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to continue to practice this lifestyle regardless, and I'm going to put Jesus on it and say I'm a Christian, now Jesus is calling you out of that. He, he wants you to make a dividing line there. Now, I get, no, 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 hear me, I, I'm, this is tough, I get it. Because even now, there are people that we know, people that I know, that are in homosexual marriages, they might even have children. Does that mean that now that they're together, there's no hope for them? Absolutely not. There is no thing that anybody has done or is currently in that is outside the redemption of Jesus Christ. And His mercy is far deeper than you could ever imagine. And he will give them space, and he will be, give them grace, and he will give them mercy. And if they are willing, he will show them a path in the new direction they should go. It may take time. It may not be according to your religious standards. It may not fall in line with your moral standards at first. But eventually, if they will follow Jesus, God will give them the direction, and he will bring them into a place of repentance where they can find the direction and new life in him. They can have a relationship with Jesus, and he can change them from the inside out. I believe that with all of my heart. 
We should be a church where everyone is welcome. And you know you can be welcoming without condoning people's behaviors. I got to be honest with you. Most of y'all, we probably wouldn't condone half the things y'all did this week. Amen? As a church, we don't condone a lot, we don't condone a lot of y'all's gossip. We don't condone a lot of your religious condemnation. We don't condone that, but you still come here and we still welcome you. Amen? You still come here and we still welcome you. And we still preach the gospel and we call everyone to a place of repentance, including myself, because we're on this journey together. Rick Warren said this. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone, it means you agree with everything they say or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. And in the church of Jesus Christ, it should never be a place where you feel like you have to hide your struggles. It should be a place where you feel like you can open up and say, here's where I'm struggling. I'm still wrestling with it. I don't even know, Clay, if I believe what you said is true, but I'm willing to look at it. I'm willing to walk it out. And I'm willing. But let me tell you something, y'all. I want you to understand this. People, I, I remember I started reading the Bible. And sometimes I'd read the Bible with my buddies. Some of them are here this morning. <laughs> and I'd read the Bible, and we'd be sitting there smoking a doobie. And I remember somebody saying to, to one of my friends, he can't do that. You can't read the Bible and, and be in that kind of lifestyle. you got to come to Jesus as you are. When, when else was I going to read it? I wasn't going to fix my drug addiction and my bad habits without the Scripture. I wasn't going to fix my internal issues without coming to Jesus. You can come to Jesus and worship and hear the Word of the Lord and open your Bible when you are in addiction, when you are in bondage, when you are in sexual sin because it's only a relationship with Jesus that you'll ever have hope of any change or transformation. It's only in a relationship with Him. So what the invitation is, is no matter where you are at currently in your life, whatever sin you are dealing with, what you need right now is not to change those things. You need a relationship with Jesus where He will change them in you. And that's the invitation this morning. Because wherever you're at, if you're pra- I- I'm telling you, like it, bur- it burdens me because I prayed. I prayed so hard. I wept over this message, to be honest with you, because there are people that I know that I love that are dealing with exactly what I've spoken about this morning. And I sit there and I think, God, I want to say this, but I do, I do not want them to feel like somehow I'm against them because I know that's not your heart, Lord. I know that you're not against them, that you are for them, and that you love them more than I could ever express. And I know there's no way, God, that I could preach in a way to express how much you love them. But what I'm praying is that every person, no matter where they're at, that this morning somehow the love of God would reach them. And they would know that every word that comes from God is a word of love and a word of repentance and a word that says, I love you so much, I see exactly where you are. I'm not against you, I'm for you. That's why I came to the cross. I see your struggles. I know you feel like you were born in this particular situation and I know what you're dealing with, but that's why I went to the cross to save you and to love you and to let you know that love. And so he's inviting all of us, not just any one particular sin. So could we bow our heads this morning? The Lord Jesus loves every single one of you and he's pursuing you and he has pursued you at the greatest cost and so father this morning no matter where each person is at i want them to sense your love and i pray god that right there where they are at in whatever situation they may be in 
that they would sense your love and your compassion. And that, Holy Spirit, you would draw them in that path, in that direction. And I pray in this moment, God, that it would be a moment of clarity for people. That they would see, God, they would sense conviction for sin in whatever area it may be in. Whatever area. But that, God, you would draw them into your love, into a place of repentance. And, Holy Spirit, you would be poured out to heal wounds There's so many people that are bound up by addictions and sexual sin that honestly, they've been traumatized. They've been abused. They've been hurt so badly. And Jesus, I pray that you would walk into their wounds and begin to heal their trauma and help them to open up about their issues, God. And you would love them back into wholeness. And you would strengthen their lives, God. And you would give them the direction that they need moving forward. Lord Jesus, we surrender our hearts to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd move on each person as they just respond to you. No matter what you're dealing with, I want you to just bring it to Jesus right now. Just bring it up under the blood. Confess your sin. Say, Jesus, I need you to save me. Just take a moment. I'm going to let them begin to play and sing, and I'm going to let you do what you want to do. If you want to sit there and pray for a moment, maybe you've got somebody on your heart that you want to intercede for. Maybe you've got somebody that you know needs Jesus and you pray that somehow he would penetrate their hearts with the love of God so that they could be saved. We need that kind of heart that Jesus had where he was willing to go to the cross in order for them to hear the gospel and turn to him. So just take a moment. They're going to sing and they're going to play. You can remain seated. You can stand and worship if you want. If you need prayer, you can come forward and we'll pray for you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, come forward. Come forward and let me pray with you. Let's just take a moment here to respond to the Lord right where you're at.